Tonight's episode is brought to you by Hare Mountain Rescue, survivalfeeling.com, and you, our listeners. I guess the moral of the whole story is you have to protect your sack. Roiliac. What is up, all of you wayward souls, and welcome back to the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell stories, all different kinds of stories. My stories, hopefully someday your stories. What we're all about here is sharing the experience, and we hope to share your experience soon. We're working on those episodes, so if you have any experiences in the great outdoors you would like to share with us, all of your fellow listeners, and myself, please write us an email and send it to mywaywardstory at gmail.com, and we will get you in the catalog and start getting those episodes worked up to share with everybody. I am glad and excited to be back here in the studio again, because once again, I am home. I am no longer in St. Louis at work. I am back in the old base camp, and it's always good to be back at base camp. Life's a lot more comfortable here, even if you do have a whiny cat in the background who does not want to shut up so you can record an episode. I see you, Seabass. Just go to sleep, dude. Just lay down. For real. I'll pet you later. Um, anyway, it's good to be home, regardless of all those things. I am excited about tonight's episode because I think you will enjoy listening to it. Um, even though I'm going to be kind of putting myself out there for um, criticism uh, of some of my past decisions in life. But tonight we're going to be talking about close calls. Um, we've talked about a couple so far. In this podcast series, way back, we talked about my close call at Natural Bridge and a few others. We're not going to talk about the ones that I've already talked about or mentioned before. We're going to talk about a couple of other ones that I think are going to entertain you, but they're also meant to be cautionary tales. Because, you know, if you can't learn from your own mistakes, you're basically doomed. You might as well start mocking up that first rough draft of your will. If you can't learn from your own mistakes, it's going to go down for you. But like, there's a couple of levels of that. Like one, like learn from your own mistakes and avoid future death possibly. And also I've always been a big proponent of learning from other people's mistakes because it hurts a lot less. Like they suffered the pain and there's nothing morally corrupt about saying, damn, bro, I see you. And I think I'm going to like use that to keep myself a little bit safer and from getting into the same situation that you just did. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually pretty intelligent way to go through life is to, you know, take in all available information that you can, anything that is accessible to you and put it to use. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. So let's learn from a couple of my mistakes tonight. And let you guys point and laugh at me and mock me if you must. But we're going to get it out there because we've all done some dumb stuff in our life. Um, Before we get started into tonight's episode, though, we actually have just a little bit of housekeeping to go over, um, which is good. We're getting some feedback and stuff and we're going to talk about it. Um, Number one thing is I just got to throw a big shout out out there to the Night Hikers of Roton. Okay, this is a band of miscreants. 'er ne'er-do-wells that I came across in St. Louis, Missouri. And um, we may or may not have been doing something totally illegal. We totally weren't. I was at work and I ran into them at another place of employment. But it sounds good. Like, that's, that's good theater. It sounds good to say that. So, these miscreants, while we were on some daring mission that was probably, was morally corrupt, um... I came to know the Roton Night Hikers of St. Louis. And anyway, these two fellers, I'm just shouting y'all out. I told you I would because I like you guys. I can't wait to someday see you down here in Arkansas on the Buffalo River so I can show you around and show you how we do in Arkansas. Um, Also, like they don't necessarily like to be fair. They don't have to be miscreants. 
and ne'er do wells. It could be heroes. Like it sounds like something out of Middle Earth. Like it sounds kind of like the night riders of Rohan or something. The night hikers of Rotan. Um. Anyway, they get that reference. And guys, I'm just saying, when this pod blows up, that's going to be a thing. You're going to have to have like a Facebook page or a website or something for the night hikers of Rotan because y'all are going to have a big old group. Y'all are going to go night hiking all the time. And then you will have plenty of close call stories to share with us. So anyway, I look forward to someday seeing you down here in Arkansas so I can introduce you to our version of the Ozarks. Um, Another piece of housekeeping to cover tonight is I mentioned a while ago that I'm not going to talk about the close calls I've mentioned previously tonight. But one of them was the close call I had on the Mulberry River going into the rapid known as the sack. And I mentioned in that episode that I didn't know what the sack was short for. I had kind of an idea of what I thought it was. I'd heard from someone, but I had nothing definitive, but I received an email explaining to me what the sack meant. And it works out really well. It all just ties together perfectly because the person that sent me the email happens to be the head of Hare Mountain Rescue, who I shouted out at the beginning of the episode. And since this episode is about close calls, it just, it all works out. It all works out. It's almost like it was meant to be. But anyway, I'm going to read you the email that he sent to me. The sac is named short for the sacroiliac joint. The sacroiliac joint connects the hip bones, the iliac crests, to the sacrum, the triangular bone between the lumbar spine and the tailbone, which is your coccyx, which is so much fun to say. I, that editor's note, that was me saying that, not him. He's way more clinical about this. The primary function of the sacroiliac joint is to absorb the shock between the upper body and the pelvis and the legs. Thus, the sac on the Mulberry River is named because when you hit the rock, it can whack, smack, and crack your sacroiliac. And that was sent in by Dave Sutter of Hare Mountain Rescue. I'm calling him out by name. I try to keep anonymity on here, but he is a public figure. And I'm pointing him out by name because he is the head of Hare Mountain Rescue. He's also with Franklin County Search and Rescue. Hare Mountain Rescue is a company that is dedicated to training you on how to save people's lives. And they are great at what they do. I am repping them tonight. I got the shirt on. You see this? This is the shirt. You earn one of these shirts when you go get trained in something by them. And I just want to shout them out. And that's why I put them at the head of the episode as a quote unquote sponsor is um, they're some of the best at what they do. You will not. I challenge you to find a more professional group of guys that are out there training you and getting you ready to go. I know there's a lot of good ones around the world, but I would put these guys right up there against them. Professional to the max. And you always feel safe, no matter how unsafe the thing you are doing is, you always feel safe. Like, I did my land nav training with them, my formal land navigation training with them, ropes work with them. Um, Have not yet got to do swift water rescue, but it has been on my list for some time, and they do swift water every year. So if any of you guys out there here in the state of Arkansas or even elsewhere and are willing to travel to get some first-class training, you can check out HareMountainRescue.com, and that is H-A-R-E, like the rabbit, not H-A-I-R, like that which I'm lacking on the top of my head, MountainRescue.com, and see what upcoming classes they have, and get yourself some first-class training in how to save some people's lives, and probably even save your own. Um, And they're just really, really good people, and he knows a lot about the hip joint. Clearly, I guess the moral of the whole story is when you challenge the whitewater rapids of the Mulberry River, you have to protect your sack. Roiliac. Anyway, um, let's move on. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about tonight, which is two events that occurred in my life um, that were really, really, really close calls. For me, Um, both of them have a lot of meat on the bones and they're going to make an entire episode. I do believe of interesting stuff for you to listen to. Um, Like I said, we're not going to talk about the close calls I've previously mentioned. I am going to mention a couple here right out of the gate. But again, the whole thing that I mentioned, close calls are wake up calls. Guys, if you spend enough time out, if you spend enough time out there in the woods, in the wilderness, um, it doesn't even have to be in the wilderness. Just doing 
anything that could put you in any kind of danger, like you're going to have close calls. They're going to happen. As I look back, you know, everyone says this. And I guess as I'm getting older, it turns out that it's one of those things that might actually be true. You hear so many people say like, I should have been dead by now. I mean, as I look back on my life, honestly, can say that. I can say that with a clear conscience. Like, that's a true story. And I think that it's probably true for a lot of people. We get lucky or protected, however you choose to view the world. Um, or maybe a mixture of both. But they should act as wake-up calls, as cautionary tells. And that's what I offer you tonight, is some cautionary tr- tells. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple real quick. All right, I mentioned, I'm not going to talk about the sack. If you want to hear about my um, incident with the sacroiliac, the sack on the Mulberry River, go back and listen to the Mulberry River experience episode. Or if you want to hear when the ocean decided it wanted to eat me, you can go back and listen to, I don't even know what episode that is, but it was about natural bridge on the coast of California. So it's somewhere in the first, I would say six episodes. Um, but those are a couple of good ones to go and listen to. But also like there's a couple that I've had that don't really fit. There's not enough meat on the bones to tell a whole story about, but they're worth noting nonetheless. I'll tell you this one right out of the box because this one, there's not enough here to make a long, interesting story, but it is by far easily without a doubt, no question, the closest I ever came to probably dying. And for all intents and purposes, I probably should have. I really honestly probably should have. Um, I know a lot of you out there have probably gone skiing. And here, I don't know if this is a countrywide thing or just something we do in the South, but a lot of people like to pull tubes behind high-powered bass boats. Um, we used to do a lot of that when I was younger. And there was one incident when I was, I was still in high school, so I think I was around 17. And... I was on the tube and the best way to put it is my good friend who I will not call out by name that was behind the throttle at the boat helm wasn't real comfortable pushing that boat at higher speeds through turns and like something you need to understand about the way these tubes work and it would work the same for skis I assume I don't know because I could never actually get up on skis I, you know, you lay on a tube. I can handle that. I couldn't handle standing on skis. Um, but you, you can't like slow down. You have to keep the boat throttled throughout your turn and you just take a big arcing turn. You're not out there cutting donuts in that thing. Like that's a good way to die. But he wasn't real comfortable behind the, with all that horsepower under his booty, so to speak. And as we were going around the lake on one turn, he throttled back to go into a turn. Like that's all there that he just throttled back. He wasn't comfortable going through a turn at speed. And when he throttled back, now you think about this, you're going really, really, really fast. And then suddenly your form of propulsion disappears. What happens? You lurch forward, especially in water. Water kind of has a lot of resistance. Um, So what ended up happening as he's going into this turn is we lurched forward because he slowed down. I rolled over the front of the tube. Somehow I hid in the wake just right and I rolled over the front of the tube. And the end result was the ski rope, the tow rope wrapped around my neck. Attached to a boat with like 135 horse Evinrude on the other end. Okay. He was concerned about not wrecking the boat again, wasn't real comfortable with the controls or whatever. He throttles back to go into a turn. His eyes are focused ahead, which is good in most situations, but they were not focused on me. He was unaware that I had essentially rolled over the front of the tube and for nobody could have known that I was tangled in the rope. Okay. He throttled up to come out of the turn that he had started. And when he hit the throttle, that rope just, like a guitar string and it snapped off of my neck. Okay. It was one of the scariest moments of my life because it was obviously a huge shock. It hurt a lot and it was instantaneous and it was a huge shock to my system. And so I'm laying there in the water in my life vest. I was at least smart enough to have it on 
um, at 17 years old, which is an anomaly for me in that age bracket. But I did have it on and I was floating in the water, face to the sky, arms out beside me. And I will never, ever, ever forget how scared I was to try to move my fingers. Like, I, I mean, dead serious. I was terrified to try to move my fingers because I knew what had just happened was traumatic. I knew that it was very intense. I knew that my neck hurt a lot. And I also knew what it would mean if I couldn't move my fingers. And I was. I, I laid there in the water for I don't know how long. It seemed like an eternity. It was probably only two or three seconds. But you know how time slows down in those kinds of situations. But I laid there in the water for a few seconds, what seemed like a long time to me, trying to gather the courage to try to move my fingers or my toes, either one. But my fingers are what I was fixated on in my mind. And slowly, I finally decided, I realized, I was like, you know what? Whether they move or not, it doesn't change the outcome. You have to find out. You have to find out because the outcome is the same either way. And slowly, I started trying to move my fingers and I did. My fingers moved. My pinky finger moved. I moved my arm to where I could see it in front of my face and moved everything. And then I started moving everything and, um, you know, dodged a bullet big time in that situation. I mean, y'all, for goodness sakes, people hang themselves in jail cells with the band of their underwear. I had a tow rope with a high powered bass boat motor on the other end of it wrapped around my neck. And I mean, yeah, it was a very, very close call. I spent the better part of the next two to three weeks with a giant scab all the way around my neck from my collarbone to the bottom of my chin and the back of my neck all the way to the top of my head. I mean, it literally pulled hair out of the top of my head. I'm surprised it didn't rip my ears off. I had scabs all over my earlobes, all over my neck. People thought, no matter how much I told them otherwise, that I had tried to kill myself. They really did. They thought I tried to hang myself. That was a rumor that went around, especially where I worked. Not so much at the school I went to because I had the guys that I went to school with there who were in school with me and they were kind of there saying, no, 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 this is crazy. This happened. But like at work, we didn't have that connection. I worked in a different town and they like all were just convinced I'd tried to kill myself and was covering it up, which was not true. But that was the closest call I've ever had, the closest brush I've ever had with death. Because, I mean, if you think about that, I very well, there's no way I probably should not have died. It took a, a, a miracle. Again, whatever you believe out there in the world, it was either divine intervention or it was an incredibly lucky break. Or maybe it took both for me to survive that. But I did and got over it, you know, not really much worse for the wear other than a really, really sore neck for a couple of weeks. Um, those kinds of things do happen way more often than you are aware of. Just always be a little bit careful. It does not hurt to have a little bit of mother hen in you. It just doesn't hurt. Um, but let's get on that one. That one, just one of the little short ones. Again, the closest I ever came. So I felt like it warranted being mentioned here tonight. It doesn't have a whole ton to do with the kind of things we talk about. Yeah, it was out on a lake, but it's not really hiking. It's not really wilderness related. I mean, that's kind of out there on the lake is a kind of a different world, but just as dangerous. These next two have a lot more to do with the kinds of things that you might run into out there in the wilderness. Um, the first one that I want to talk about happened when I was, I would say about 20 years old. Um, it's been a long time ago now, y'all, you know, it's amazing. Like I have no clue what year this happened, but I can remember the two friends that I was with and around the time frame that this happened and I can sort of put a date on it, but I would say it's about 2000 and I was 20 years old and there's this place in the deep, dark hollows of the Washita mountains of Southeast Oklahoma is the place where I grew up tromping through the wilderness. It is a beautiful, beautiful area, much like the Ozarks, but beautiful in a different way. They are both dramatic in their own ways. Um, and just south of the town I grew up in was a series of ridges called Shawnee Ridges um, in the Washita Mountains. And down there, 
in that area, there's not much going on down there. Very, very few people live in the Washita's. I think I've mentioned this before. The Ozark Mountains, tons of people. It is mostly privately owned. There are some tracts of national forest in the Ozark Mountains, but they are nothing compared to the national forest land that is in the Washita Mountains. It is the vast majority of the Washita's is owned by the government as national forest property. There are places down there where it's like less than one person per hundred miles is what the population density would be considered. I researched that a few years ago for some project. I can't remember now, but I remember that number and like having to double and triple check it. Like that doesn't seem right, but you go and look at the maps. What is forestry owned? It's the vast majority of the Washita's, which is amazing for the outdoors person. Because there's everything in the world you can get into down there. There's fishing, there's camping, there's hiking. I mean, there's ATVs, there's UTVs you can go. I mean, interestingly enough, unless something's changed, this is just like a one-off. It just occurred to me. I've forgotten about this. Unless something's changed in the Washita National Forest, which would probably be all national forest lands, but specifically, this is where I read about this. There are certain roads, obviously, that are off limits to... um off-road vehicle use. They even have gates up on several of them. But it's not illegal to ride across the forest floor. Like the one thing you would think they would be trying to protect the virgin forest floor (laughs) versus these roads that are established in trails, they're not off limits. But the forest roads are. So I was like, okay, so if I want to go from here to there, but I can't use that road, I could just drive through the woods and I would be completely legal. Anyway, it was just an oddity to me, but yes, you can use OT OHVs out there. Um, it's a great place and it's not heavily trafficked. Everyone goes to the Ozarks, but y'all you're really missing out because the Washita's, they are like a hidden gym. Not everyone goes down there. They're much less used. The only time you're going to run into anything down there really is when you get into hunting season. And then a lot of those old forestry roads out in the woods, they will be lined from one end to the other with with week-long deer camps. Some of them entire season-long deer camps because they will hunt every season from muzzleloader to rifle to archery and everything in between. Um, but it's an amazing place down there. It's beautiful. There is a river in those mountains closer to where I live. There aren't nearly as many clear freshwater rivers in the Washita's that are really accessible from where I lived, like there are to me now in the Ozarks. But one of those that was close was the Black Fork River. The name's kind of a misnomer. The water is actually clear, and it feeds into the Poto River, which is a river bottom-style river, which is just like mud soup. So I always thought it was kind of odd. Maybe they call it the Black Fork because the deep holes is kind of like black water, but it's just because it's very clear. And it is a beautiful, beautiful river. We did a lot of fishing there back in the day. Oh my gosh, the smallmouth on the Black Fork. It's great fishing for smallmouth. We used to wade fish, um, floats, float fish. We used to have floats. People used to float in like personal inner tubes. I haven't seen these in a long time, but this was a thing down there back in the 1990s and the 2000s. I don't know if it still is, but they're like inner tubes that you set down into like a diaper, but the inner tube is a part of the diaper you're getting into. And it's got places for a tackle box to zip up and all kinds of stuff off around you. And you just float along, kick your legs and get your little fins. If you were really into it, get your little flippers, like you're a scuba diver and just paddle around and, and fish out of those things. But the black fork, everything in the mountains down there kind of revolves around that. Well, one night we were just up from the black fork river camping in the Shawnee ridges. We were going down to fish in the Black Fork and going up into the mountains for, you know, riding four wheelers and whatever else. But we were camping one night down there in the Shawnee ridges, not far from the Black Fork River. And we were on a tributary, one of the small seasonal creeks that goes into the river. The interesting thing about this creek is water never, ever flowed in this creek. I never saw running water moving through it. There was a big pool that was only about I mean, honestly, it was like mid-shin deep at the deepest point, but it was very long and it was very wide, right below the bridge. You drove down the forestry road across this tiny little concrete culvert bridge. And then the camp spot that we preferred about all above all the others that we basically lived at during high school, 
through all of our weekends and Christmas breaks and Thanksgiving breaks. We basically lived on that camping spot. Never, ever in all those years ever saw that creek flowing. It was always just a pool of water that tapered out towards the end. And, you know, again, it was seasonal. We never saw it flow. And the camp spot that we liked to stay at was right above that creek. And the creek bed was probably seven-ish feet below the surface of the forest floor where we would be camping. Like, we're here. Seven feet below us would be this little creek that never had water running in it. We weren't really in a valley. We weren't really, honestly, making any huge mistakes as far as the selection of a campsite. Um, But we always camped along that creek, and it was a great place to camp until one night. One night, I woke up in the tent to the flashes of lightning and the rolls of thunder. Now, they weren't even rolls, y'all. They were cracks. There's a difference. A crack of thunder is like on your head. A roll of thunder is 25 miles away. These were like cracks of thunder. Like it was sharp. The lightning was lighting up the whole tent. And it woke me up middle of the night one night. And I, and we're all sleeping in sleeping bags on the ground in the bottom of this dome tent. I mean, it was probably like a six-person tent. There were three of us in there. And I remember what I remember specifically is waking up to the lightning and the thunder. I think the thunder woke me up. Then the lightning caught my attention, and I realized the tent was rocking. The wind was shaking the tent so hard, it felt like the walls were trying to cave in on the tent. And I started to realize I felt really, really cold on my back and my butt, and like the lower part of my body, but it was on my back and my butt. And I started trying to figure out why. Why? I mean, you know, you're waking up in the middle of something a little bit chaotic, it takes a while to get your bearings. It takes a few seconds, right? And I start realizing I'm cold and I start thinking, why am I so cold? It's the middle of summer. And I start to realize, I start to unzip my sleeping bag and I start to feel around with my bare hand. And I realize I'm in like two inches of water. Okay. So the tent's full of water. I look over and my two companions over there, one of them was on higher ground down by my feet and not suffering these ill effects just yet. But the one right next to me, he was like underwater up to almost his shoulders. Like I could see it in the lightning flashes. He was almost, I mean, the water was coming up. It wasn't over his face yet, but I mean, he was like in a low spot of the tent and he was really deep in the water. And I started slapping him and yelling at him. I was like, Steven, 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 wake up, wake up. And he got really angry when I woke him up, but then he realized there was an issue, you know? And he's like, crap, what's going on? I was like, man, it's, it's storming hard. Like, but we need to figure out what's going on here because we're underwater. We got to like make some decisions here. And then us talking and all the lightning, the thunder, the wind, the chaos woke up our other friend and he got up and he started looking around and we hear, we all three at one point, it's kind of like we were talking amongst ourselves, like, Hey, should we try to ride this out? Or do you think we should go get in the trucks? And I'm over here being the mother hen that I'm at. I was like, I think we need to get in the trucks just because of the lightning, nothing else. We just need to get in there for the lightning. And we're in old growth pine forest. Pine trees grow really tall and really straight. Obviously, most of y'all know that. But they're also very weak. In wind shear, they can snap really easily. Okay, so my brain's also saying, we've got some crazy wind here. What if the tops of some of these 100 plus foot tall pine trees start coming down on our head? And we're in this tent that's not even handling the wind and the rain at this point. But we're like having this discussion and trying to wake up and trying to make good decisions in this moment. And I think all three of us at the same time, it seemed that we all kind of realized at the same time, there was a noise present that shouldn't be present. And at first, I got terrified because I thought tornado. You you hear stories, and this was back before I was a trained storm spotter from the weather service. This is before I had the knowledge I do now. Hell, this was like before the internet, y'all was even like really accessible to us. And I remember hearing the roaring noise and thinking, oh crap, are we gonna are we in a tornado? We're gonna die. And I noticed that their faces both had a similar look and that they both had turned their head in a similar way. It just the body language to me said they're listening to what I'm listening to. And I remember saying to them, Do you guys hear that? And both of them started nodding their heads. And I think they were thinking what I was thinking. I was like, well we've got to get in our vehicles. We have to get out in this pouring rain. You know, the tent, we were already soaked. 
the one guy, he was not completely soaked because he was on the high end of the tent. But we realized we had to get in our vehicles. And as we opened the tent to decide to make our run to our vehicles to try to wait out the rest of this storm, I opened my tent and looked out and realized, put a flashlight out there and realized that roar was the creek that was next to us. And it was level with our tent. The water we were laying in was not water that had come in somehow through seeps in the seams or holes in the tent. It had come in from the bottom. Our camp was underwater by a few inches and just 10 to 15 feet away was the drop off that went into the creek. And that creek was a raging freaking torrent. That was a terrifying moment. We were like, we were getting flooded out. We were right in the midst of it. Our camp was already underwater. And if the water got any higher, it was going to cover the bridge, which was our only way out of there. So we all made the decision in that moment to load up in the vehicles, try to get out of there before the water flooded the bridge and trapped us out there and come back later and recover whatever was left to recover of our stuff. And that's exactly what we did. We got loaded up in our vehicles. I remember I stripped all my clothes off, down to boxers, had the truck turned on, got the heater cranked. They both were in their individual vehicles. And I remember driving back to town, to my house, with those three, kind of in a little convoy. And I remember very clearly doing like 15, 20 miles an hour. The rain was so heavy. It was one of the strongest thunderstorms I think I've ever personally experienced firsthand in my life. And y'all, for the last six, seven years, I go out and find these things on purpose. Like, it was one of those kind of freak storms that happened with no forewarning. Back then, y'all, this was before cell phones. Like, legitimately. Like, yeah, there were car phones. Y'all remember those big old bags? I think my uncle had one of those. Like there were were phones that were considered what we would call a cell phone, but they were ridiculously prohibitively expensive. Nobody had them except people that were wealthy. Cell phones didn't start making it out into the world on an individual user basis. They didn't become readily available to a lot of people until like really the early 2000s. I think I was 21 or 22 when I first got my very first cell phone. There was no way to know back then. You know, there was no internet to just go and check. You couldn't pull out your phone and just check what's the weather look like for tonight. Like you had to be like watching the news to see what the upcoming weather report was. I was 17, 18 years, or no, no, probably close to 20 years old. I wasn't watching the news. Y'all, I was not watching the news. There was a lot of things I was doing when I was 20 years old. And I assure you, watching the news was not one of those things. But we did get out. We did get over the bridge, which was that alone was terrifying because you could see the water broiling into the side of it on your right. You could see it exiting, churning to your left, almost dead level with the bridge. We barely got out of there in time before the water was over the bridge. And then driving back, mostly nude, all the way, which should have been like a 25-minute drive, turned into like an hour and 20-minute drive in the middle of the night. I think I got home that night. It was three or four in the morning. I remember it was the wee hours of the morning. And just driving, and the rain was so hard, you couldn't really see anything. When it lightened, it actually illuminated the road and the woods and everything better. You could see better to drive with the flashes of lightning. And I just remember that being a very miserable night, but also a very, very close call. Like now, this is the cautionary tale of it. Back then, we didn't have a lot of resources to help avoid that kind of situation. But now we have phones. Now we have weather alerts we can set up if you have cell service on your phone, wherever you're staying, but you can check before you go. You can get some really solid data. And y'all, weather prediction has come a long way in the last 20 years, a long, long way. Technology has come a long, long way in basically every field it can, but meteorology is no different. It's come a long way. It's gotten really stinking accurate. When you're within 12 to 18 hours of an event, it's gotten very, very accurate. Okay. So check, always be aware and check y'all. We mentioned long time ago, several episodes back, we mentioned a very, very, um, unfortunate incident that happened on the little Missouri river, um, in Albert Pike campground several years ago here, where a lot of folks lost their lives. And it was an event like that 
heavy, heavy rain, flooded through a valley so fast there, there wasn't a chance. There wasn't a chance. So in this day and age, you got to be on top of those things. Be aware, be smart about where you camp. Don't camp in the river bottom itself. Had we camped along the creek, we probably would have been wiped out. There's probably no doubt of that. Actually, I just saw on the old Facebook recently where there was an event on the Buffalo River that happened. A whole lot of campers were camped down at river level and heavy rains upstream came in the middle of the night. And fortunately, nobody died. But lots of kayaks, lots of tents and lots of gear were lost to the river and are still being found here weeks later. And they're still trying to find the owners of various pieces of equipment on the old Facebook pages about the Buffalo River. So that's the cautionary tale of that situation. Just watch. Just watch, y'all. Be aware of what's coming. We live in a day and age of technology where we can have a better idea. So just be mindful of that. Now, we need to take a quick sponsor break. We need to listen to the people that help keep the lights on here in Studio 119. But we will come right back after that and get on to my second and final story of close calls for me personally of the night. I want to take a second to tell you guys about tonight's sponsor, Survival Feeling. Survival Feeling is a hiking brand based in Greece, and they offer an assortment of gear that's aimed towards the goal of helping you better enjoy your time outside. And that is, of course, what we are all about here at Wayward Stories. I really like this company for a lot of reasons, but chief amongst them is that they were founded with giving back to the community in mind. They donate a portion of all proceeds to organizations like the Wildland Firefighters Foundation to help support those who work to keep us all safe while we're out there trying to find ourselves. We've partnered with them to bring you guys a unique coupon code that will save you wayward souls 15% off of your order. Go to survivalfeeling.com and use offer code waywardstories at checkout. I think you guys will like what they have to offer and what they're all about just as much as I do. Once again, that's survivalfeeling.com and use the offer code waywardstories. And welcome back. Thank you guys for sitting through that sponsor break. And hey, hopefully checking out our sponsors. You guys go check them out. Survival Feeling's a pretty cool place. They have got some good stuff over there and you guys get a discount if you use that promo code and also it helps us out in a lot of ways so anyway we appreciate that and we're going to get on to our final story of the night um this episode's running a little long but for me personally i'm down with that like i just treat it like i feel like it's just like bonus content i love long form podcast if you're a short form kind of person like i'm sorry when we run long but i love long form so i'm totally cool if we run long and it just gives y'all more to listen to. It's like, to me, podcasts are the background track of my life. So, not my own, of course. I can't listen to me. After I record these and I edit them for a day and go through and listen to it 37 times to try to get everything fixed up right, I don't ever want to hear it again. Like, I can't. I can't. I can't listen to myself. I hate my own voice. But I love the other podcasts I listen to. And like I said, they kind of function as a background track. So we may run a little long tonight. Matter of fact, our next few episodes may run longer than that hour. Um, We got some really fun stuff coming up. I'm really excited about the next, I'd say, five to six episodes. I'm I'm just a little, little hint, just a little teaser. Spooky season is coming. We're going to have some fun during October. Oh boy, I'm excited. Anyway, let's get on to tonight. Let's get on to the final story from tonight. This one was also a um, very serious close call. There were a lot of factors working against us in this scenario, my friend and I. And we're just going to call him Coonier. Um, That's because that's what we called each other in high school. I've actually considered putting together like a mini series within this podcast. It's just called the adventures of Coonier and possum belly. That was a tongue in cheek naming of each other. Um, just acting like idiots. I'm sure alcohol was involved. And, um, I started calling him Coonier and he started calling me possum belly. So we're just going to call him Coonier for the tonight's episode and keep him anonymous. Very few people will know who he actually is. And the people that do probably aren't listening, but anyway, Coonier and myself, the venerated Possum Belly, we were going fishing in January on the Black Fork River. The Black Fork River, which I mentioned earlier, beautiful, clear river, um, just south of where I grew up. And there is a dam south of where I grew up on that river that fed the city's water supply for many, many years. It's a what's considered a low head dam, but it's, you know, really tall. 
low head dam. It had no give. It was in and of itself a spillway. It wasn't that kind of a, um, it wasn't the kind of dam that was technologically advanced. Its sole purpose was damming up the river, holding water so it could be pumped from this old ancient grody pump station, which was cool as heck to explore across the Poto River Valley and to the water tower at the end of town. Um, and it had been in place since the early 1900s. I want to say 1906 was the year of its construction. I used to be into all that history, and I'm pretty positive that was the year of its construction. And this dam existed for all those years, even long after the water tower was pulled down because it was dangerous because kids were climbing it and doing so. I got news for them, though. Like, you can't get past us kids. Like, they pulled down that water tower because the teenagers were spray painting all over it and it was no longer being used. Well, they just left it there. They didn't like scrap it, so my buddies and I, one of my friend's fathers, bought that land, and we used it to have BB gun fights. Y'all remember BB guns? Back when you could still buy those things? We shot each other with BB guns, and we used that collapsed water tower as like a base and a battleground. It was like extreme paintball that could actually injure you. That's how we used to get down. And it's no wonder that a lot of my friends are no longer around anymore. But anyway, um... We went down there and we went fishing above the dam. Now, this was in January. We were going smallmouth fishing and largemouth fishing, which is its own game in the cold winter months. It's a lot of slow bottom jig worm type of fishing, artificial stuff. Um, But during the winter, there's a lot more water flow. In the winter, there's a lot more rain and the water tables stay a lot higher and there's a lot more water flow, right? Well... The Black Fork was, as I said, the dam that we were fishing above was about, I would say it's between 15 and 20 feet tall, okay? And typically the water did not flow over the top of it. But on this day, it was. Like I said, it was just a giant spillway. It was just a big concrete wall. It wasn't anything technologically advanced. It was from 1906, sole purpose to hold water back. Um, but the water was flowing over the top of the dam on this day at a, a substantial rate. I would say it was six to eight inches above the dam top. And I'm trying to be extremely conservative. I do not want to over dramatize this. I want to be as accurate as possible, but it's been 20 plus years ago. I was in high school. So this would predate um, my last adventure that we got into. I just mentioned I would have been 17 or 18 because I remember I ended up skipping school that day after this incident went down. We got in early in the morning, very early. It was winter. We were in full guard, like full winter clothes. I remember having on coveralls, um, thermals, big, heavy waterproof boots. Like everything I had on was thick and heavy because it was freaking freezing. We got out there at the crack of dawn um, and put into the river in what is known as a fishing scamp. I don't know if those are still a thing. So I'm going to describe it real quick for anyone that may be unfamiliar or anyone in other parts of the world um, that are listening know what it is like obviously there are kayaks everyone knows what a kayak is today everyone knows what a stand-up paddleboard is today but and most people are going to know what a flat bottom boat is other folks in other parts of the country and the world call them john boats but just a big metal basin that drops into the water and you call it a boat and you can usually attach a motor to the back of it that's a john boat or a flat bottom boat a scamp a fishing scamp was kind of like I don't even know how to describe it, but they were small. They were much shorter than a John boat. They had a very high center of gravity. You essentially sat on top of them on top of the water and they were filled with styrofoam. So they were positive buoyant, even if they were leaking water. But that wasn't like the sole way of keeping you afloat. You needed that boat to be waterproof. Generally, they had a weight limit of about 550 pounds. Well, Kunir and myself... Again, the venerated possum belly. We were big boys in high school. He's a little bit bigger than me, but I was big. Like, y'all, I weigh like 60 pounds less right now as you see me on this YouTube channel. Like, I weigh like a buck 90 right now. I weighed close to 240 in high school. Um, Maybe closer to 250 because I remember that weight came in after high school. That's when I lost all that weight. <laughs> One day I saw myself in a mirror and I said, dude, what has happened to you? And so we changed all that. But... We were big boys. Chances are we came in over weight limit. Just he and I. Not counting our tackle. Not counting a trolling motor. And not counting the battery 
to power the trolling motor. Batteries are heavy. You know, they can be 60, 80 pounds. I don't remember if it was a deep cycle battery or anything like that. I just know we had battery on there. Had a big old trolling motor, our two big butts, and all of our gear. So we're out there fishing, fishing on the Black Fork. Unbeknownst to us, that old fishing scamp had a leak. And it was slowly filling with water, which becomes even heavier and heavier. And at some point, we were up above the dam, fighting the current. We were on the far side of the river from the safe side, where my vehicle would be. And I suddenly looked back and realized, see, something felt wrong. I knew something felt wrong. I felt like my body position had shifted is what it felt like. Something felt out of place. Something wasn't like before. And I started looking around trying to place this. And then I looked down and realized that my end of the scamp was underwater by an inch or two. You need to understand a scamp sets a full like eight, 10 inches, maybe more out of the water. It sets on top of the water. Like they're really, really top heavy. They're really, really overloaded. Like the axis of weight, it's not a good mix. And I realized that my end was underwater. And I remember I immediately said, oh, boss, we're taking on water. And he turned around and looked. And I remember seeing his eyes get like this big around. And him, quick goat thinking, quick coonier thinking, cranks that trolling motor up. He's got control of the trolling motor on his end. And he cranks that bad boy up to go straight behind me towards my truck, right? But this is the end of the boat that happens to be underwater. So what he did when he cranked up the trolling motor is he plowed the end of that, the nose, which would be my end, directly down into the water, thus standing the scamp up straight up. And I'll never forget, I will never forget this image in my head, the silhouette of his body coming down on top of me into the ice-cold January flooded waters of the Black Fork River above a dam in a strong current. Have you ever hit really cold? Have y'all ever done a polar bear challenge? Any of y'all ever done something stupid like jumped into some really cold water in January or December or whatever? You know what that feels like, right? Like you can't breathe. You couldn't get enough oxygen. It was so painful and yet at the same time so numb. But the situation we now faced was we are in the water. The scamp is still floating, but it's upside down. We are in the water. We only have one life jacket aboard. It came floating by me and I threw my arm onto it. I could not feel it at the time, but realized later, see, my tackle box had been open at the time that the calamity started to ensue. And I had a bunch of topwater baits in that tackle box, like stick baits, um, some people call them jerk baits, hula poppers, um, all kinds of different topwaters with treble hooks all over them. And those lures went everywhere. Many of them went onto that life jacket that I grabbed with my numb arm and couldn't feel it. I had to pull some hooks out of my arm later. Let's just put it that way. But I had a life jacket. There was no other life jacket aboard. That is, you know, part one part of the cautionary tell here, there's a reason you're supposed to have life jackets on board. I didn't even have it on, but it still saved my life. Now, what about Kunir? Kunir was holding on to this scamp for dear life. It was his life preserver at this point, but there was also, he had more skin in the game. This scamp was his grandpa's scamp, and he wasn't about to let it go over that dam. And I realized almost immediately, this is an issue because he's trying to swim. He were, he was cursing me because I was trying to talk him into making a swim for it because the dam's getting closer. We're in a current taking us towards a dam that's going to take us over the top down a 15 foot drop into a massive hydraulic, right? We're dead. We're dead. At this point, we're dead. If we don't get out, we are both dead. I realized this. He was being overpowered by the thoughts of his grandfather's wrath. Um, and so I tried to help him for a minute. At first I thought, well, if we can make headway, we can both use it to keep us afloat. Okay, so I am swim up on it and we're both kicking our chubby little legs as fast as we can kick them. But I realized because I keep looking back at the dam, I keep looking at the bank, looking at the dam and trying to gauge, are we making progress? Are the angles changing? Are we making progress towards the bank? And I realized we weren't. We were getting further out. We were being pulled to the center of the river. 
We were making no progress out of the center of the river. So I remember telling him, trying to, through bated breaths, that you couldn't get enough oxygen, trying to tell him, like, we're not going to make it. We're getting too close to the dam, and we're not making any progress. And he was cursing me because I was trying to talk him out of saving the scamp, and he was saying, no, we're going to save this GD scamp, you know? Um, And what ended up ultimately happening, I made, like, this decision in my brain. I was like, look, we're both going to die if we go over this dam. He's not going to give in. And I had the thought of, if I abandon him for my own life, maybe he will realize he cannot do it alone. And even if he's mad at me, even if he hates me, even if he never talks to me again, he will maybe, maybe decide he has to abandon the scamp because he will choose his life over the wrath of his grandfather, right? And I made that decision. I did. In that moment, I made that decision like, I may, he may hate me forever, He may get out of this water and whoop me up and down the bank, but it's better than dying, right? And I did. I abandoned him. I said, I am sorry, but I'm going to the bank. And I remember I took off swimming and I had the life jacket wrapped around one arm and I was paddling. I was swinging for all I was worth, man. And it was brutal. And I remember yelling back at him. I'm like, you have to give up on it. And I remember he called me a word that I can't pronounce because this is not tagged as an explicit, um, podcast, but he called me a series of words actually between really, really ragged breaths. And then he gave up and he started swimming for the bank. And we did. We both swam out. I got there first, obviously. And the first thing I realized that was interesting is that I couldn't stand up. I was, I guess that numb, I guess it's a hypothermic thing, but I couldn't stand up. I crawled out of the river and I had to crawl. I tried to stand up a couple of times and I ended up just crawling all the way to my pickup truck and using the bumper and then the tailgate and then the bed to drag myself up off the ground into a standing position. And he did much the same, except I went over to meet him and helped him stand up. So we get out at this point, he's not cursing me or wanting to kill me yet, but we start trying to figure out, can we save the scamp? Okay. Now this is a wide river at this point. When it's full and flowing, I mean, it's 100 yards plus across, if not more, maybe 150. I've not seen it in a lot of years, so I'd have to go see. But it was very wide. And I remember we run over, run, <laughs> we we kind of zombie walk over towards the dam and try to get a gauge of how far out is the scamp. And y'all, it's way out there. And this is how much hypothermia or the early stages of hypothermia jacks with your brain. This is a true story. If I'm lying, I'm dying. Guys, I'm telling you the truth. I reached into the back of my pickup truck. You guys remember bottle jacks, those things that get you killed? Like the worst kind of jack on in the history of the planet to jack a car up and change a tire, a bottle jack. They're, they're horrid. But they had these real long poles, like maybe three, four feet long. I say real long, like four feet long that you had to crank in a circle to get the jack to come up. I had one of those in the bed of my truck. And I reached in and I grabbed the arm to crank it up with. And I look at this scamp that's like 85 yards away from us out in the middle of the river. And I say, maybe we can reach it with this. And he looked at me and said, you dumb son of a gun. You'll never reach it with that. And he reaches down and picks up a stick. That's maybe, maybe two feet longer than the bottle jack crank in my hand and says, we'll reach it with this. In retrospect, in retrospect, our brains were not okay at that point, but we realized only upon him trying to reach out to it and realizing he was, you know, he got about six feet closer to an object that was 80 yards away, 250 feet away from him that, okay, that's not going to work. And we watched that. The, to give you an idea of the power of the water at this point, we watched the scamp. The scamp was bolted with four carriage bolts to the um, trolling motor. The trolling motor was bolted with four carriage bolts to the scamp, okay? It hit trolling motor first, d- nose on. I mean, just nose on. And the scamp swung around in the current, and it pulled it down the other side. And when it pulled it off the other side, the head of all four of those carriage bolts, and you all know what a carriage bolt is, they're Thick bolts. They are meant to carry load. The head snapped off of all four. 
Y'all ever watch old Western movies when the outlaws and the, the good guys, the white hats and the black hats are shooting at each other and you hear the bullets ricocheting, that noise. That's what all four of those carriage bolt heads sounded like. That's how much force that water had. When that trolling motor snapped those carriage bolts, they came across the water and were ricocheting off the top of the water like you skip a rock and they sounded like someone was out there shooting a gun and ricocheting bullets off the top of the water. And then the scamp went over, disappeared, got hung up in the trees, and then washed down the river to never, ever, ever be found again. After the fact, somebody found my tackle box, and it was literally about six miles as the river flows, downriver, hung up in the shoals of a whole different river that the Black Fork, feed, Black Fork feeds into, the Potter River, but that doesn't matter. That's neither here nor there. I drove back to town that day, freezing to death, stripped down once again to my boxers with the heater cranked on high, trying not to die. Get to the house. My mother at the time worked overnights at a factory. I'll never forget walking in there, banging on her door and saying, hey, mom, Clint and I sank the scamp in the Black Fork. I'm not going to school today. I'm really, really cold. And I remember her rousing just enough to say, go take a hot shower. <laughs> so this is the same woman that told me if I break both of my legs, don't come running to her. So anyway, I'm kidding. She was a great, wonderful mom. But um, she was awake. It, I guess, stirred in her brain while I was in the hot shower of what I had come and reported. And she came out and she was waiting on me when we got out. And I told her all about it. Long story short, we lost a whole bunch of crap. Interestingly, homeowner's insurance for my friend's father care covered some of it. And they all got new gear. I got a little bit of new fishing gear. And, you know, in the end, we had a great story to tell. But, y'all, we were really close. In the water. In January. In coveralls, in boots, in heavy, heavy clothing, and one life preserver between the two of us. On a scamp that we have overloaded with our weight. Y'all, cautionary tale. Learn from other people's mistakes. That was dumb. That was really, really dumb. What we were doing was the kind of thing teenagers do where you don't think through the consequences and you don't think about things like max load limits on boats. You don't think about things like, why do we both have to have a life vest? There's one in here. You don't think about those things because you're just hyped up to go out and live life. The problem is when you get hyped up to go out and live life, sometimes you can see to it that you never get to live any more life. And we got real close to it that day. I know for a fact we did. And again, divine intervention, incredible stroke of luck, Maybe both, but we survived it. And I promise you, I never, ever, ever have gone out in a boat again where I wasn't a little bit more aware of everything that was going on around me, where I didn't have a PFD somewhere available and aboard, and aboard if not on me. I personally never again made any of those kinds of mistakes out there on the water, but I see people do it all the time. And that's why I'm telling the story tonight. We have run on now into a very, very long episode, which makes me happy, but that was my last story of the night, and there's not a whole lot of other places for me to go with it from there, so we're going to go ahead and call it tonight. We're going to wrap it up and start preparing to make up the episode that's going to come after this one. That one's going to require a little bit of research on my part, so I've got to get busy on that. I feel like tonight's episode was solid. I, you know, it's easy to do episodes about things that you really, really, really lived, especially the stories you've told a million times in your life. Like you have such a full understanding of everything that you're about to say. The episodes basically make themselves and they're good and full of real solid content and no fluff and no filler. Um, so yeah, I'm excited. I hope you guys enjoyed tonight's episode as much as I enjoyed making it. And I look forward to seeing you guys back here in a couple of weeks for the next episode. And after that, like I said, teaser, spooky season's coming. And I've got plans, y'all. I've got plans. We're going to have fun in October. Um, but I appreciate you guys listening. And I appreciate you guys telling all of your friends, please tell your buddies, tell your hiking groups, tell the people you go out and go out in the woods with. We're starting to gain some traction, guys. And I have been able to notice that where it's coming from is from word of mouth. Word of mouth's a big deal. So if you'll tell your friends and say, hey, do you listen to podcasts? Or if you know some people that do, let them know about old Wayward Son here at Wayward Stories and that sometimes we can be mildly entertaining, maybe worth a listen. Um, if you would do me a huge solid rate 
review and subscribe. That makes such a massive difference in my world and getting this project out there for other people to hear and see. And also submit your stories once again to mywaywardstory at gmail.com for anything else. If you want to be a patron and support me as an independent artist, if you want to go check out our YouTube, our private groups, our Instagram, our blogs, our pictures, any of that stuff, all of it can be found at waywardstory.com. Once again, thank you guys for listening and watching tonight. We'll see you next time. And until then, y'all be good to each other. Rocky. The mountaintop awaits. Carry on.